And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is in your, is your neighbor's. This is the final sermon in our very short, uh, very compressed Ten Commandments series. Um, I'm sure if you looked online, it would be very easy for you to find a plethora of sermons that cover each of the Ten Commandments. Um, some of them are very good. Some of them are not so good, but they are definitely out there. So today we are going to focus on the second table of the law. So just a quick reminder of the structure of the Ten Commandments. Verses 1 and 2 are what are known as the preface or the prologue to the Ten Commandments. They essentially establish God's authority uh, and his prerogative to issue such laws. Verses 3 through 6 are what are known as the first table of the law, which is roughly speaking laws that govern our relationship with this God who is the moral lawgiver. And then verses 7, uh, sorry, verses 8 excuse me, 12 through 17 are the second table of the law. And those govern uh, the way that we interact with each other and with our neighbors who are not Christians. So today's sermon has three broad points that I'd like to cover. The first is how this second table of the law governs our interaction, not only with other Christians and not only with our neighbors, but re in reality with all of creation and all creatures. There are implications within these uh, Ten Commandments and within these uh, Second Table Commandments that govern how we interact with animals that we may care for in terms of our responsibilities. There are implications for the environment. We won't get into too many of those details. Sorry, I couldn't hear Apparently Siri would like to know more about that. Um, the Second Table of the Law uh, extends not only to our outward actions, but we'll demonstrate uh, that the Second Table also even within the Ten Commandments itself, uh, extends to the motivations which drive our behavior. And the final point that I'd like to land on and where we'll spend a bulk of our time is that no one is able to keep these laws perfectly. And ultimately, that is why we need Jesus Christ. 
So just a reminder, as we start to look at some of the specifics of the second table here, uh, none of these commandments should be seen as really hyper-specific sort of contextual commands that only apply in one spot. The, the Hebrew language for this is actually more traditionally called the 10 words. And that comes from the fact that each of the headings starts with a word that is sort of in, incorporates or encapsulates what is going on with this commandment. And so if you should really look at these commands as 10 moral principles which govern all of life. And one of the uh, consequences of that is that anytime we see a command in the Old or New Testament that is a commandment, that is a, a moral precept that we are obligated to follow, it's an application of one of these 10 commandments. It has to fall under one of these categories. And we'll talk about the second table commandments and how some of those are broader than we expect. So I don't want to spend a lot of time going through each commandment and detailing all the cans and can'ts of each commandment, but I do want to roughly run through them and give you a little bit of a glimpse of how they're a little bit broader. So in the, the fifth commandment, uh, we read that we are to honor our uh, father and our mother, which just a side note, anyone who wants to tell you that, a, uh, that the Hebrew culture was a rampantly sexist culture with no regard for women really just needs to open their eyes and read. There's not a single law code that I'm aware of in other similar cultures that had sort of an equality of respect for how children were to engage with their parents, both of their parents. And so when we see these kinds of things, we should very quickly, when someone says, oh, well, your religion is just very sexist, we should be able to go quickly to something like the Ten Commandments, which is a bedrock portion of our faith. It's a bedrock passage and say, well, right here, 1400 years before Jesus came, we have Moses receiving commands from God that places mothers and fathers equally on the same place in order to receive honor. So just a little apologetic side note. But one of the things that we often don't realize about this commandment is that the relationships uh, indicated, they are meant to be a, uh, an example of a type of relationship. And so we see parents are in a role of authority and the, both the Jewish and Christian reflection on this commandment as they've looked through the rest of the scripture and see how other, other instances of this commandment are applied really applies to the entirety of our lives. Anyone who is in an authority role over us is imaged in scripture as though they were a father. And so we can see uh, just a few examples. You don't have to turn there. But in uh, 1 Timothy 5 verses 1 and 2, it says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And the point of this passage is to show that the relationships we have with uh, men with older men, which is an inherent position of a type of authority, uh, that that is imaged here in scripture as, as a parent-child relationship. Uh, there are passages in the scriptures where kings are referred to as fathers and where the subjects of the kingdom think the children of Israel. Well, they're the children of Israel, but they were also in, in some instances collectively known as the sons of David. Right? So this, this relationship between the king and his children or, and his, his people was imaged as a father. Uh, we can see that there are sometimes passages where servants are called children and they're treated as such. Um, the, the one that comes to mind is the passage in, uh, I believe it's 2 Kings, where this king from another uh, or general from another country comes and he brings this servant with him uh, to be healed. And, and what 
pulls out there is that the servant refers to him as my father when he's trying to sort of gently correct him, saying like, no, you're not approaching this the right way. He calls him my father. We see that language all over the place. Another aspect of this where we see it extends further than, and than we might think is this also obligates those who are in this position of father to act towards those in the position of child in a certain way as well. So we are going to turn here real quick. If you'll turn to Ephesians 5 and look at uh, verse 21. And uh, I'm going to just read a couple segments here. You don't, uh, we don't have to read the whole thing. But there's an element of this I want to pull out that demonstrates this principle. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And now this may sound a little bit strange to your ears because we're sort of starting in the middle of a thought. Uh, Obviously, the whole book of Ephesians is a coherent whole, so we can't always just pull one piece out. But starting in verse 21, it says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then uh, jump down to chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And then just jump down um, quick to verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that it is, is he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So I think you can see just by reading that, that every time Paul gives, gives a, a command to one person in a, a relationship where there's some sort of divergence of authority, there's a flip side command that obligates that person. Husbands have an authority over their wives and wives are to submit to their husbands. But the flip side of that is that husbands are to love their wives and to live self-sacrificial lives on their behalf. Parents are to honor their uh, Our children are to honor their parents, but the parents are to act in a way that makes it easy to be honored. They're not to provoke them to anger and to provoke them to sin. So we see that this extends throughout the whole of life. And and Paul even makes the same application, right? He says that this commandment is to honor your father and mother. And then without skipping a beat, uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure in Greek, without even switching to a new sentence, he flips over to give that command and to explain the implications of that command. So this has um, all sorts of applications for us in the real world. Uh, When you are pulled over for speeding and the officer explains to you that you are going faster than you are legally allowed to, then we should be respectful to them. We should own up to our faults. We should be able to recognize that they're doing their job. When we tell the story later, we should be honest about the integrity that the officer did demonstrate in executing the law properly. When we talk about our president, I mean, we may not like it, but our current president is in the place of father in this relationship. They're an authority over us in a certain sense, and we are to respect and honor their person as far as it's possible and honor their office as far as it's possible. 
And I know that bristles us a little bit the wrong way sometimes. There are definitely presidents in the past that it was easier for us to do that with than our current president, but just because it's harder doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. The sixth commandment at first seems very simple, right? Don't kill people. Don't murder people. What this actually prohibits is the unjustified killing of another human and also the way that we carry ourselves and live our lives in relation to whether we promote and protect life or whether we take actions that actually hinder the growth of life or hinder flourishing. An example here would be um, if we uh, like to eat a lot of really fatty things. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a good juicy steak once in a while, but if all we ever eat is steak, if all we ever eat is pizza, and I'm preaching to myself here on this one, then what we're doing is we're actually causing our own lives to be shortened, right? And this has all sorts of applications. That doesn't mean that you can't enjoy a good steak. It doesn't mean you can't um, enjoy something else that may, if overused, have negative health benefits or negative health uh, consequences. But what it does mean is that we need to soberly mindedly use all sorts of different things in a way that furthers our own life, that furthers the lives of those around us. This applies to how we exercise, how much, you know, how much food we eat or don't eat, whether we get enough water in a day, if we make use of uh, doctors and medicine, if we take time to rest and get enough sleep, all of these things fall under the auspices of the sixth commandment. And I, I'm not going to, but I could go through each of those categories and show you passages in the Bible that talk about making proper use of this. Paul tells Timothy to use a little bit of wine for his stomach because during the day that was a form of medicine. There's a passage in Isaiah where uh, someone is commanded to compress figs and put it over a wound. And that was a early form of a bandage. Right? There's commands to get enough sleep. There's commands to make sure that we are engaging in the proper amounts of rest and recreation. The seventh commandment is uh, likewise, uh, seems pretty straightforward, but as we'll learn uh, later on, it's much harder to fulfill than just outwardly not committing adultery. This commandment prohibits all forms of sexual immorality, not only outwardly, but also in thought and speech. The Eighth Commandment requires us to have honest financial dealings, to seek to obtain appropriate wealth to, in order to avoid sinning. Just uh, a page earlier than our, the passages we just read, uh, turn to Ephesians 4.28, should just be on the, next pa the, the previous page here. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So, so there are various kinds of things that we are commanded to do. And although it may seem like this is as simple as make sure you pay your taxes, make sure that you don't shoplift, it also means that we should be taking uh, whatever kinds of righteous actions we can to build our wealth so that we're no longer tempted to do those things. Now, it's not a safeguard. It's not going to prevent people from stealing just because they have a lot of money. We see sometimes that those who have the most money are often most beset by greed. But the principle here is sound. If you have enough money to purchase food, right? We think of the Aladdin song, gotta, gotta eat to live, gotta steal to eat. Well, if you have enough money, then you don't need to steal to eat. And then you, you do need to eat to live. 
the ninth commandment, uh, which is, I think the easiest to understand, but sometimes the hardest to fulfill is that we are uh, required to speak honestly about ourselves and about others. It doesn't just forbid saying false things, but it would even extend to saying true things that are not appropriate to the situation. Right? So I could, let, let's make up a hypothetical person. We'll call them Doug, right? And if I, I find out that Doug uh, has an alcohol addiction and I go around telling everybody who have no business to do that, even though I'm saying a true thing, I'm hindering their own reputation. I'm probably hindering their ability to, uh, to heal and to seek treatment, doing all sorts of things that are going to harm them. So we do not do that, right? Or maybe I know someone who has an anger problem and, and I don't need to go tell everybody. There probably are people that need to know that, but there are lots of people who don't. A few passages here that uh, cover this. Proverbs 17, 9 says, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. So if someone sins against me or I know of sin in their life and I'm able to communicate to others in a way that helps to cover that, not to hide it, but it is not necessary for them to know, then I've actually protected them from unnecessary criticism. First Peter 4, 8 repeats a similar kind of statement. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Sincere love covers a multitude of sins. And Ephesians 4, 15 says, rather speaking the truth in love. So Paul is clearly teaching us that there is a difference between speaking the truth not in love and speaking the truth in love. So not everything that is true has to be said in every single circumstance. I'm sure that all of us can think of times in our life where we've followed the, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all rule. But the final of the 10 commandments is where we transition to our next point. And that point is that the second table of the law and the first table, but the second table of the law especially extends below the outward actions to the motivations of our hearts. We don't need to labor too much on this because we just went through the uh, Sermon on the Mount. We learned uh, in Matthew chapter five that uh, the law is still in effect, right? Christ says not to, uh, that he did not come to abolish the law and whoever relaxes the law uh, is subject to judgment. In uh, verses 21 and 22, he establishes that unrighteous anger is actually murder. In verses 27 through 28, lust is actually adultery. And in 33 through 37, which is not always brought into this conversation, but he actually says that saying one thing, but meaning another, is actually swearing falsely. So as, as I'm sure I've mentioned in the past, I'm in a number of online theology discussion groups. And the big hot topic going around right now is what happens if my employer says to me, if, you don't, if you're not vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. Am I lying if I, if I don't wear a mask? Because I'm communicating in some sense that I am vaccinated by my action. Now, I don't actually think that you are. I think if you supply information that is misinterpreted, that's not on you. But some people are saying, well, you can just do something clever, like say, well, yeah, I'm vaccinated, and sort of with your fingers crossed behind your back, say, I'm vaccinated from the flu, right? Or yeah, I'm, I'm inoculated. And what that means is I'm just careful. That is a lie. It's, it's, it's an intentional effort to be deceptive. 
And so we see that, that these things in the Sermon on the Mount, we're used to the idea, uh, and we've heard it said, and I've, I've even said this, that Jesus isn't diminishing the law. He's actually intensifying it. He's not making it easier to follow. He's actually making it harder by extending it from the outward actions down into your inward motivations. But if we read the Ten Commandments carefully, the 10th commandment actually establishes that that was part of the moral law all along, right? Because the 10th commandment is different than the others where the others primarily seem to govern outward actions and then have implications for your inward motivations. The 10th commandment specifically governs only your inward motivations, which then has implications for your outward actions. So we could look at, um, we could look at the commandments prohibiting adultery. Jesus has done the heavy lifting for us right? If you lust after a person, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. The 10th commandment says not to covet, or we could paraphrase that, not to lust after your neighbor's wife. Jesus says, if you are angry with a person, then you have already committed the sin of murder in your heart. Well, the 10th commandment can use that same logic to say, if you are so angry with someone that you seek for them to be dead, if you're coveting their death, then you've already committed a breach of the command not to kill. The application to the commandment not to steal is fairly obvious. If you are looking at your neighbor's goods and their property and you desire it so much that in your heart, you're thinking about, well, I could probably take that. I, want, I don't want them to have it. I want me to have it. You've stolen that in your heart. Now, it's not true that Adultery of the heart, if we want to call it that, is the same thing as adultery proper or adultery itself. Right? All of our sinful actions originate in our will and in our heart. So it's more of a sin to have that in your heart and also to do it than it is to just have it in your heart. But all sin is worthy of condemnation and punishment by God. And all sins, no matter how small or internal they may be, all sins result in eternal separation from God. And so just as, as Christ confronted the rich young ruler who said, I've kept all these commandments. He said, teacher, what must I do to be saved? And he says, well, you know the commandments. Don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. You know the commandments. And the, the young ruler said, well, I, I've done all those things. I've never stolen anything. I've never killed anybody. I'm faithful in my marriage. You know, he's, he's saying these things. Christ says, well, if you really want to see, what about that 10th commandment? Go sell all your stuff and follow me. Don't even cover your own stuff over me, let alone someone else's. And the rich ruler walked away sad because he couldn't do it. And so that leads us to our third point. We are probably sitting here thinking, oh man, how, how can anyone do this? How is it even possible? If, if what's true, that any sin, no matter how small, merits eternal damnation and judgment and separation from God, then how, how can we do this? Turn over to James uh, chapter 2. James chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Before we read that, one more application. The reality is that even if we don't outwardly commit this, that we're not even capable of inwardly preserving ourselves. So an example would be if you 
uh, are sitting in church on a Sunday, and this example is something we've, we've heard before, if you're sitting in church on a Sunday and all you can think about is where you'd rather be, it's not true that that's worse than not coming to church. So sometimes people say, well, if you don't really want to be here, then just stay home. No, no, come to church. Please come to church. But if you're sitting here thinking, oh man, the sermon is so long. Man, I just wish I was doing something else. I can't wait to get home and do this. Can't wait to get out of here and do that. That is coveting, you know, violating the Sabbath. You're essentially coveting setting that time above something else, above God's time. Just like we all understand that you may be outwardly faithful to your spouse or you may outwardly be chaste in reference to your sexual purity, but if you've spent time lusting over someone or consuming internet pornography, then you have not preserved that. And so even if we may think we measure up okay, there's a, there's a, a relatively famous apologist and evangelist named Ray Comfort that many of you may have heard of. And his, his primary go-to is to ask people, are you a good person? And, you know, these, these non-Christians typically go, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I think I'm, I'm pretty good. And he goes, well, have you, ever, have you ever stolen anything? And they're like, no, no, no. And they're like, you've never taken like a piece of candy or took a pen home from work and didn't return it. And they're like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess I did that. And he said, well, what do we call people who steal? They're like, well, thief. And he says, well, have you ever uh, told a lie ever in your life? They go, well, yeah, of course I've told a lie. Well, okay, what do we call people who tell lies? We call them liars. And he goes through usually only two or three of the commandments. He says, so by your own confession, you're a stealing, thief, liar, adulterer, and blasphemer at heart. And most of these non-Christians just kind of chuckle and they're, they're not convicted by it. But the ones who are, those are the ones that he then shares the gospel with. So we can't even measure up to that level of goodness of just outward conformity. And Christ in the next passage in the, the Sermon on the Mount says, if your righteousness does not even exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, then you cannot be saved. Well, what he's saying is the Pharisees had all sorts of great outward conformity to God's law. They had so much conformity to God's law that they invented their own laws to follow. That is not enough unless it exceeds that. Not just saying unless your righteousness exceeds the outward conformity of the Pharisees. It's that, but unless it actually exceeds that, and has a positive merit before God, he cannot be saved. And so turning to James chapter 2 here, verse 8. Verse 8 reads, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right. So the, the second table of the law is what he's talking about here specifically. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So he's, he's reinforcing this. That even if you think that you've kept the whole law but you just get one little piece wrong, then you, you might as well have violated the whole law. And he's specifically referring to our passage. Now, I, I think we understand the first table of law as inward motivations a little bit more intuitively, but he's pointing out here the second, the second table specifically that even violating something in the first, in the, the, the second table here violates the entire law. And then turn over to uh, Romans 7, and this is where we will uh, plant our flag and finish things out. Romans chapter 7 
and I'm going to read verses 7 through 25. This was our meditation verse today, but I'm going to read, uh, read it again here. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produces in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and, though, and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. We'll just take a, a quick pause here. And what Paul is saying here, sometimes we read this to think, well, the law is bad. The law is what, what causes death. That's true from a certain sense. But what he's saying here is that it is not the law itself that causes death, but it is the sin within us that the law then uses to convict and condemn us, sentencing us to death. So Paul is saying, I wouldn't have even known what it is to covet if it wasn't for the law. We're made aware of our sins by comparing ourselves to the law. And oftentimes the first thing, if I say, don't think of a pink elephant, you almost can't stop yourself from visioning a pink elephant. That's because humans are naturally wired to want to push boundaries. Because of sin, we want to transgress. Because we are oriented towards sin instead of towards God, we desire to transgress known laws. You can be going along just fine at 35 miles an hour, coming down that hill, going into Enfield, and you see that 35 sign, you're like, oh, I can't believe I'm going so slow. And you want to push that to 40. The difference between 35 miles an hour and 40 miles an hour, it's not something you're going to notice. It's not going to get you to Lebanon any faster. It might save a couple seconds. But we want to push that boundary, don't we? Continuing reading in verse 13 here. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, right? Did the law which is good bring death to me? Absolutely not. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin through the commandments might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am in the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So some, some commentators will look at this and say, this is Paul's experience prior to his conversion. I don't, I don't really think that that works. We're not going to continue to go through the whole thing um, for time reasons, but he later on says that the, he, he loves the law with his whole being. That's not something that a non-Christian says, right? That's not a non-Christian pre-regenerate statement. And he says here in verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, right? But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. As much as those of us on this side of regeneration want to do what's right, and we really do, we really do genuinely want to do what's right. T Tim's prayer earlier was spot on. God has taken this, this sinful heart of stone that desires nothing but spiritual evil. He's given us a, a heart of flesh that desires to seek and serve that which is righteous and what is God's precepts. But that battle is never going to be complete for us in this life. 
But as much as it's true, as much as we can sit there and try to psych ourselves up, we're always going to have those desires that are going to pull us aside. And so that is why we need Jesus. That's why it is the case that Christ had to come and die on our behalf. So if we continue just a little bit further, we hear some of the most beautiful uh, words in all of the scriptures in, in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Right? We still are obligated to the law in terms of how we serve God. We've talked, we talked about that, the three uses of the law. We don't have to go through that again. But the fact is that we are no longer under the law as a condemnation. We are obligated to the law, but we are no longer under the law. This is what, uh, what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is not enough for us to have the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's not enough for us to pound our outward life into submission and conformity to some external set of laws. We can do that. With enough grit and determination, you could probably conform your life to the external precepts of the law. I don't know anybody that's done it, but you probably could. The internal precepts of the law, the internal moral fabric of ourselves cannot desire to do that in our innermost being. Even though Paul says we delight in the law in our innermost being, there still is this part of us that doesn't want to delight in the law in our innermost being. And so the only person in all of history who has exceeded the righteousness of the Pharisees is Jesus Christ. Because he not only outwardly conformed to the law, but he did it with a full heart of joy, seeking only that which is the Father's will. He says that my meat and drink is to do the will of the Father. To borrow a little bit of language from the King's James Bible there. So this is what we get in salvation. It's not just as if I have never sinned. We've all heard that justification is just as if I had never sinned. That's certainly true. It is as if we had never sinned, but it's so much more because we're not only just justified, but we're adopted as God's children. And that means that because Christ was fully righteous, because as the son of God, he fully fulfilled the demands of the law, both in terms of not doing things he shouldn't have, but also in doing all of the things that he should have, he is able to give us that. So when it says that he became sin, he became everything that we are. He took on all of our sin and in his body, it was crucified on the cross. So it has no more sway over us. It has no more power over us. But in him, we become the righteousness of God. He is the righteousness of God. And that is what he gives us. In God's eyes, by grace, he sees us as though we are the faithful second Adam who came and rescued his people. So we're going to sing a song here that has these. So I want you to really meditate and think on these words as we sing it. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we are a people who are mixed. We understand that sanctification touches every part of our being, that we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. But we also recognize that sanctification is an ongoing process 
and that there is still a mixture of corruption and purity in our lives. And so we pray today that as we've reflected on this second table of your law, as we've understood that it penetrates not only to our actions, but to our very internal motivations and desires, we pray that you would continue to grow us so that that mixture becomes more and more like Jesus Christ. And like Jesus, we pray that we would desire more and more and that you would enable us more and more to live unto righteousness. Pray this in his name and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.